It's 2021, and this is the first episode of season two of The Spoon Drift, and I'm kind of excited. I'm Asher Leamond, and welcome to The Spoon Drift Podcast. Here in the show, I talk about a little bit of a lot of things. I just skim the surface of a great ocean of information. I might even go as far as to say that I skim the spoon drift of information. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about artificial intelligence, the Space Force, and the removal of dams in the United States. Let's get started. There are certainly people who question the dedication of a lot of time to games, whether that be board games, video games, card games. But if there's any piece of evidence that definitely supports the use of games to engage one's mind, it is the fact that games right now are one of the ultimate tests for artificial intelligence. I know I've been made aware of, whether that be through news, or news, or, well, okay, (laughs) it's probably been the news. The news is the medium through which I've been made aware that games like Go, especially. I know I've, I've heard a lot about the game Go. It's a board game, an Asian board game, that has really... It's very intricate from what I understand. I've never actually played the game, but because it's been used to test so many AI systems, I'm kind of intrigued now and kind of want to. But through the news, I've learned a lot about different artificial intelligence systems being trained on video games, namely Go, Chess, and Atari, like Pac-Man. Now, an article was published on the BBC about... DeepMind, or a firm by the name of DeepMind. They're owned by the same parent company as Google, Alphabet Incorporated, and they've been putting a lot of research into some pretty powerful AI systems. Now, you may already be familiar with some of those systems. First one um, was called DQN, and it it did achieve human proficiency, human level proficiency in Atari games, and it used only pixels and game scores as input. Another one that came after DQN was AlphaGo. Now this program beat a master Go player, which is that intricate board game I was talking about before, four to one. And that competition occurred back in 2016. And has been, and the way that they trained AlphaGo on that game was by feeding it information based on the results of past games. So I was able to to look at what was successful and what failed and then be able to play an efficient game when it went against the best human players. After AlphaGo came a system called AlphaGo Zero, which even beat AlphaGo's performance just the next year. And it did it without taking in results from past games played by humans. It was just given the basic rules of the game and left to play. After AlphaGo Zero came Alpha Zero. It was a generalized AlphaGo. What it did is, just like how AlphaGo Zero 
what it did was just it was is using the basic rules of the game and allowed to play alpha zero did that for other games like chess and another one called shogi so it it, it comes from it, it's the ai systems developed by DeepMind have gone from requiring input or data describing games played what worked what didn't work to just being fed rules so if it's given the rules of chess what every piece can do what and how taking another piece works given the rules of the game then it has found out what works by playing through scenarios and then playing games the same company it is working it has another ai that goes beyond alpha zero and it's called Mu Zero. Now, what makes this different is it's another progression of removing prerequisite data from the learning process. We were talking about Alpha Zero, and it was given the game's the game's rules. Mu Zero is not. It takes away even that fragment of information. Now, what it does is it simply makes a move and is. It, it learns through trial and error. In the BBC article, it describes these the, the trial and error as receiving rewards for success. So whenever it makes a move that works, the, the system receives some sort of reward, maybe a, a score increase or something. Like the, the objective is to get a higher score. And whenever you take another piece or you make a, a, a good move, a score is increased. Some sort of reward, but in a program since and through the through the trial and error of doing moves and either getting a reward or not it learns the rules on its own without being told them now it's pretty easy to see how that is it's definitely a step in the progression of ai that researchers want to achieve because if if a machine is able to evaluate a situation without any like without requiring information from humans, then it it can be more powerful solving a more broad range of problems. Uh, there are concerns, as always, uh, with the development of artificial intelligence. One being that as companies like DeepMind are really pushing forward and making all of these big advancements that are quite phenomenal as far as the progression of AI is concerned, there are concerns out there that maybe all this progression is being done a bit too quickly without enough attention being paid to potentially unintended consequences. And the article notes that. Beyond games, there are, of course, a number of more practical problems that AI is being applied to. One of which is video compression. Now, if you're familiar with Google and some of its subsidiaries, you might know that Google owns and operates YouTube. Now, YouTube is a video sharing platform, one of the largest, and they make their money by transmitting video over the internet. And that that requires bandwidth. If Alphabet would be able to find a better way to compress video, and by compress video, that would result in less bandwidth being needed to transmit the video that is their good that they distribute and sell, then Alphabet could save money. Now, DeepMind is being 
applied to this problem, trying to find a better way to compress video and potentially save a lot of money. Now, Google hasn't actually released how they're going to use this improved video compression technique, but they, they say they'll release that in, well, this year, 2021. And it's, it's likely to benefit YouTube. I mean, that's a pretty direct benefit to improve video compression when it comes to their service that they provide. A little bit about how this all works. Now, AI, I, I, I know I've seen movies, I've read books, I've seen TV things uh, of, well, the first thing that comes to mind is like iRobot. It's an old movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. Well, it's based off of a book by Isaac Asimov and Will Smith is in the movie. And in the movie, there's like this army of robots that are controlled and they're the main character is kind of fighting against them. But there there is the fear, or at least the grain of fear, that an artificial intelligence could control humanity in a way that we don't want. Uh, so, as far as the nature of artificial intelligence goes, there probably is a bit of confusion as to what exactly it is. Now, I'll now, I mean, I'm no expert in artificial intelligence, but I have a general idea. Uh, in, a, in a program, what you're doing is basically you write instructions for a computer to do something. You can have it print text. You can have it do computations for you, like a math problem. You can have it solve that. I know I've written programs um, that encode messages or just you know, like compute the area of the circle. I mean, those are easy ones. Uh, I've worked on more complicated ones, but... I mean, it's just basically a series of instructions. Now, artificial intelligence, what it does is instead of the the programmer having to write out every single instruction in a program, what it does is it'll like store information about how a computation goes. And then based off of the, inf the information obtained from a computation, it can make the same computation again later or a different one that might be better. And that goes with kind of learning how to play the game of chess. If you move upon a certain way and then all of a sudden your own queen gets taken, that's that's not good. So it it kind of stores that that maybe moving that certain pawn in that certain way is not really a good idea because it often in, involves losing a queen, which is bad because the queen is a really good piece to have in a chessboard because it can move anywhere in a lot of different ways. But it's that sort of uh, storage of information that allows an AI to do what it does. In the, in the context of a board game, it can be better than than a human simply because it it has all of that information about what moves work and what moves don't readily available, whereas humans, you know, we forget things. <laughs> and that's why it's important that whenever we're putting these these AI systems up against humans, they usually put them up against the best in the world because those are the people who are going to have the best shot at beating these artificial intelligence systems. What this often boils down to is kind of like I was saying before, it in a, in a more, I guess, technical jargon, it might be called a, a tree search algorithm. So you do this all the time without even thinking about it, a tree search but let's let's talk about this a little bit more in the, the context of a computer program. What a tree search could be is if if you envision your best your favorite board game, you 
you look ahead. Chess is a good one, uh, but we've already used it, so let's come up with another one. Uh, okay, a board game I really like is Risk. Risk is one where you've got a map of the world, and you've got little troops on all of them, and you can kind of invade other territories or have other people invade yours. And you can, like, say, you've got a couple of troops in the southeast United States, and you're trying to move down into the Central America, and you move a couple of troops down. You roll the dice, uh, and the people that you're attacking, they also roll the dice. Whoever comes out with the higher number wins the battle. If you win enough, you move in and you take over the territory. Fun. Now, there's there's a pretty interesting dynamic in, in one section of the board, down with Australia and New Zealand. Now, there's there's only one connection between Australia and New Zealand and the mainland of Asia. So... From the from a strategic standpoint, that section of the map is is very well protected. If you if you protect the one territory that connects Australia and New Zealand to mainland Asia, then the likelihood of an invasion is slim because they're going to have to go against a ton of troops, and it's unlikely that you'll be able you'll be taken over. So let's look at this from a broader strategy standpoint. If you control Australia and New Zealand, what this does is it allows you to lock down an entire continent. And in the context of the board game, New Zealand and Australia are one continent. And if you control a continent, every time it's your turn, you collect a certain number of troops. And if you control an entire continent, that number of troops you collect gets a boost, which is good. So knowing that you can control an entire continent is really good. So that's like your first, that's one branch of your tree. You know that's um, a very beneficial territory to control. Now another uh, branch is you could think about, all right, so what if I move up and control the, the lower territory of mainland Asia that is the only one that connects to Australia? That's all in good. But what's that going to gain me? If you invade in there and one of your fellow game players is occupying that and they control all of Asia, which is really big, uh, there's a slim chance that you're going to be able to be successful there. So you might choose to not do that. Um, and that would be one branch of your tree that you don't want. Uh, from a broader standpoint, looking at the whole board, Asia is an extremely hard continent to hold on to because there's a ton of territories in there. And in order to get that continent boost that I was talking to you about before, you have to control the entire continent. And controlling all of Asia is very difficult in the context of risk. Smaller continents like South America, uh, North America is kind of medium, Africa, those are a bit easier to control um, because they have fewer territories. And they're largely surrounded by water, so there aren't too many entry points. But these are these are like strategy points that you pick up on as you play the game. And you you make subtle decisions on which territories to invade and which ones to leave alone based on your your kind of your past experience. And those are all things that I've learned from past experience playing the game. The thing with Australia, New Zealand being a good stronghold that not other players can really penetrate. Um, South America and Africa 
being good continents to start off with because they're rel relatively small, have relatively few um, territories. So if you control just a few, you get a whole continent boost, which is really good. allows you to build up your army. These are things that I know from playing. And those are the same things that an AI would pick up as they play through the game. And they, they go through these tree searches. All right, if I invade this territory and I win, all right? So now I move some troops there and I invade one that's connecting to it. The, the likelihood that I'm going to do that, they, you know, they're going through these scenarios slim because that one is surrounded by, it's right up against this other continent with, that usually has a lot of troops bordering it. So that's not usually a good territory to do. They do these tree searches. They play through the game a bunch of times, do a bunch of computations. Is this good? Is this bad? All right, that doesn't work. Let's try another way. And they can do all of this and evaluate which will work with a high likelihood of being correct. And they can they have the benefit of doing all of this really quickly and consistently and storing that information. Now, humans tend to be a bit slower at that, or at least uh, not as efficient in doing it or remembering what they did before. That's where that advantage of the AI comes in. And that's what those tree searches are. You're just going through and playing out different scenarios. That applies, I mean, you can think of it in any video game you've played or board game, or even just talking to people. I mean, how many times, how many people do you know that, eh, yeah, talking to that person, they're not, they don't talk a whole lot, so maybe I'm not going to talk to them, or, yeah, I don't like that person, or I really like that person, I'm going to talk to them. I mean, you, you go through this stuff every day without thinking twice about it, and that's what they're trying to get the AI systems to be able to do. And DeepMind is definitely a firm that is making a lot of progress in that right now. Uh, a couple of other possible applications of artificial intelligence could be virtual assistants. I mean, you some of those, like at least in I mean, right now, they're pretty advanced. But in all actuality, they're rather they're not necessarily super powerful. But like uh, Alexa, Amazon's uh, personal assistant, we got Siri's, Apple's, you have Google Home. These personal assistants, they are driven by artificial intelligence. I mean, right now, you, you're able to talk to them. I mean, that in itself is a rather landmark achievement. Being able to just say a word and have the computer pick that up and answer you or search the web for you. I mean, those those are pretty remarkable examples of artificial intelligence. IBM has its own artificial intelligence program, Watson. I mean, that's it's not so much entered um, common households, at least at face value, but a lot of services that we use take advantage of Watson's power. The Weather Channel was acquired by IBM and uses Watson in some of its services. But some other, some other ways that artificial intelligence might be put to use could be uh, virtual assistants, uh, personalized medicine, being able to more reliably provide people with personalized medical advice, or even search and rescue technologies. Games are just the start. That's what we're using to train the AI, to test it out, to see what's working and what's not because it's, it's pretty superficial and they're readily available games. And they're just, they're kind of fun. It's got a bit of a pizzazz to it when a company can boast that they beat the world's best, insert board game here, 
player, their computer beat it. I mean, that's pretty impressive, and it's one to make headlines, and that can be good for a company wanting to make progress in an artificial intelligence field. But board games are not the end and end all and be all, and they're not really the goal. The goal is to have it be able to do those other more practical things, like search and rescue, or personalized medicine, or security. <laughs> that one, that one, I find a little bit uh, a little worrisome. <laughs> uh, the the idea that artificial that an artificial intelligence could be used um, in combat, but yeah, that's just me being a little bit paranoid. It's because I don't understand the full. Uh, gravity of the situation but still that's that's the goal and truth be told there's a lot of good that could be done with artificial intelligence now it's we just have to wait for that progress to be made there's some interesting u.s military news the U.S. military is made up of the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, the Space Force, the Coast Guard, and then reserve components like the Army National Guard and the Air National Guard. But all of them, except for the newest Space Force, have some sort of term describing their members. Like Army, they're called soldiers. Marine Corps, they're called Marines. Navy, sailors. Air Force, airmen. Coast Guard, Coast Guardsmen. But Space Force just recently got their name for its members, and it's an interesting one. Members of the Space Force will be called Guardians. <laughs> I kind of like that, I gotta say. It's kind of it's good. According to NPR, the Space Force accepted proposals for terms. They were to be gender-neutral, distinctive, and emphasize a future-oriented military force. And the one that won <laughs> was Guardians. So a member of the Space Force, which boasts about 4,000 members, roughly, about now, will be called a Guardian. Now, I know Guardian. I don't know about you, but at least for me, and I know a couple other people, <laughs> Guardian definitely brings to mind a certain movie that emphasizes space and, well, I mean... Let's be a bit more specific than space. Galaxies and guardians, and namely guardians of the galaxy. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit similar there. But um, the U.S. military points out that although that, that the term guardian is actually, it is not one new to space-related operations. Uh, guardians of the high frontier was the original command motto of the Air Force Space Command, which was the predecessor to today's Space Force. So Guardian, it kind of was a very natural transition to the Space Force. But yeah, it, it, I imagine there will be a bit of hubbub and controversy surrounding the use of the term Guardian, but uh, but th that's that's the way it is right now. The BBC has a really good article on the removal of dams in the U.S. Now, the dam system that this article is about specifically is the system that 
is along the Klamath River, which is located in Northern California. This river was once, not now, but it was once the home of the third largest salmon run in the, in the continental United States. And the specifically types of salmon that were common there were the Chinook salmon, uh, also the Coho salmon, and these, I mean, the, the salmon was a major part of the culture over there, major part of people's well-being, especially the Yaruk Native American tribe. Now, they had relied on the river and the salmon for food and for their livelihood because they would eat it, their, their own families and their neighbors and friends, but they would also sell it to, to make money. But ever since these, these dams were constructed, now they've been there quite a while, built in the early 1900s to produce hydroelectric power. But once the dams were put in, a major consequence of that was, well, I mean, think about <laughs> what a dam is. It, it basically cuts a river in half and slowly lets the water move through it after it spins turbines generating electricity. So by cutting a river in half, one, it becomes very difficult for fish to move along the river unless some other structure is built to allow for that. And it's something like a, a fish ladder, which uh, it's, it sounds very fantastic, but it, it'd be like a zigzag pattern that would allow fish to move up the height of a dam. But it... it is not very good for fish. <laughs> and also what it does is dams have a lot of negative effects on the environment surrounding the river. Now let's, let's talk about some of those those problems. Rivers feed water and you know bacteria, fish, just all kinds of living things. They It, it acts as a, a major thoroughfare for all this stuff. Um, sediments, for, for one thing, move as a river moves. And a dam stops all that. And what, what that can cause is the river below the dam no longer has fresh sediment moving to it because it's, it's stopped by the giant wall. And what that means is that it just becomes very rocky there there isn't the the buildup of sediment of dirt or of plant matter building up to allow for more plants to grow it just becomes rocky and one specific problem that the Klamath, Klamath River experienced was without the sediment building up it was just rocks there, and a certain type of worm, a bristle worm, was known to, to, to live on these rocks and really thrive on the rocks. Now, the worm itself wasn't that much of a problem. However, the worm, the bristle worm, was known to be a host for a, a parasite. That parasite is called the C. Shasta parasite. That's the official scientific name. But the parasite, that, as, and so the, the bristle worm there as a secondary host for the parasite became a problem because that parasite would kill a lot of 
salmon. And so there is a big threat to the salmon. So now they're not only able to move up the river for spawning purposes, but now a lot of them are dying due to a parasite that has become very prevalent in the area. Uh, and so there's just all these, these disruptions to the ecosystem of a river by putting in these dams. Uh, and so there, there, over the course of many years, there have been a number of pushes being made to get rid of the dams. And just recently, some major headway was made furthering those efforts. Now, let's, let's talk about exactly what happened. Uh, a company called Pacific Corp was one operating a lot of these dams. One of those efforts to, to get rid of some of them succeeded. On November 17th, 2020, a new agreement was signed between Pacific Corp and the Yaruk Native Americans and other people hoping to get some of these dams removed. That agreement was signed, and assuming that federal regulators approve, uh, the, the hope is that these dams will be removed starting in 2023. And I know that's, that's a pretty long timeline, but there's, there's been the progress made, and that's, it's been a major step. Now, the, this BBC article is, well, it's really, it's got a lot into it. It's a really phenomenal article. Um, but they, they, they point out kind of the, the weirdness of this whole deal. The, the, the operating company, the Pacific Corp, has agreed to destroy some of its stamps, which, if you think about it, is kind of weird. Why would they be like, all right, we're cool with this. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to destroy them. I mean, what, what happens to all that elect hydroelectric power that surrounding areas are relying on? Well, what they're actually going to do is you're going to hopefully compensate for the lost production of power in other dams that they still continue to operate. And interestingly, uh, the time for their license, for their operation license renewal is coming up, and that's going to cost a lot of money. And it actually ends up being less expensive for Pacific Corp to destroy the dams than renew the license to operate them. So financially speaking, it's actually a, a beneficial decision for them to make. And I mean, it's, it's a little disappointing to, to see that it had to take that sort of motivation for this for, for this process to be taken real seriously. But there's some good progress coming from that. All right, so we've done the who, we've done the what. Let's do the how. <laughs> Let's talk about how this is going to happen. So these are giant dams in the middle of a river. Now, removing these things is going to be a bit of a challenge. One, environmentally speaking, because you don't want to damage the surrounding area. But it's also going to be a challenge as far as the engineering of it goes, because dams hold a lot of water, and water is powerful. <laughs> you can't just break the dam and just let the water flow. That would cause a lot of bad things to happen. Now, what's what they're going to have to do is, so if you, if you look at a dam in a river, you've got the lower part, which is like a river, normal water. And then at the upper part, behind the big wall, you've got a reservoir of water, a big, big area 
full of water. Now what they're gonna have to do is they're gonna have to lower that reservoir area down to a point so that they can destroy the wall without letting all that water through all at once. So they're gonna so the, so they're gonna have to lower that water level and then start drilling and blasting apart the wall itself and then use trucks to remove the rubble. And this will expose the bottom of the reservoir. And what they're gonna have to do there is, because that was underwater for so long, it's not going to be well, well fit to survive above water anytime soon. If we were just let it be, it would take a long time for seeds to be planted, for grass to grow, and then for weeds to grow, and then for trees to grow. I mean, this, this could be decades, centuries of growth before it becomes the sustainable environment that we would want to be in that area. So what they're going to have to do is you're going to have to uh, be clever about it and push, give, give, the, give the reservoir bed a push as, in terms of um, greenery development. So what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to take mulch, cover that reservoir bed in mulch, and seeds of plants that live in the area to hopefully spark the sort of plant life that they need there. In addition to hopefully building the sort of environment there, the, there's another benefit, a major benefit of having the plants there and the mulch. It's for purposes meant to help stop erosion. First, by putting the mulch there, it allows something for the water to filter through and not just rain to just smack up against the dirt and wash it away. But then the the seeds that will eventually grow into plants, now the roots of those plants are extremely important in holding the earth together, the, the soil together, and keeping it from washing away. And that will, in turn, allow for the for different animals and plants to naturally come in and start building up the area. So we've got um, plant life that we're hoping that we're, we're going to have to work with in order to develop the area. And then that plant life in turn is going to help keep the land there and better restore the river, maybe not exactly to its previous state, but at least getting close there. A major another benefit to restoring the continuity of the river would be that water temperatures of the river as a whole would drop, which would in turn reduce the risk of algae blooms, which then pushing even further would increase the dissolved oxygen levels and improve pH levels. So we'll overall have a, a number of benefits in terms of water quality for the animals living in it, the plants living in it, and all the surrounding organisms that rely on the river. All right, stepping back a, a little bit even further, I mean, this, this is simply a, a small glimpse into a larger trend of infrastructure change that's happening throughout the U.S. right now. I mean, I'm talking about just one river with a couple of dams being removed. That that trend is, in the U.S., over 1,700 dams have been removed. That includes 90 
just in 2019. So this trend is one that's really an indicator that there are other ways to generate hydroelectric power and still maintain the the environmental quality of river basins and river areas. It is happening. (laughs) They're making other dams perhaps uh, more efficient to compensate or just finding other ways to generate hydroelectric power. And the, the fact that that's being done while still reducing the number of dams is is a good sign, I think. I just I found that article extremely interesting, and I definitely recommend it. It's it can be found on the BBC, and it was is written by Alexander Matthews, published in November of 2020. It's about it, it's entitled the the largest dam removal in U.S. history. Yeah, there's. There's a lot to it. I mean, I'm only scratching the surface with this this discussion, but it, it's a lot to it. And I, renewable energy is definitely something that interests me a lot because our fossil fuel, uh, the fossil fuels available to us are finite in quantity. We will reach an end to them. I mean, that's I know a lot of people use scare tactics when it comes to arguing in favor of renewable energy. But it is true that we will reach that end. There is a limit. <laughs> and renewable energy is is definitely a, a field that's needed and one that ha- that needs to be pursued with great interest and vigor, especially when it comes to other forms of exploration even beyond Earth, which I am rather interested in. Because long-term, sustainable energy sources are need for extended missions in space. But just in terms of preserving our own planet, not polluting the oxygen with the burning of fossil fuels is an obvious benefit. It's something we, we all need to be wary of when it comes to our, when it comes to our energy consumption. <laughs> Now for the music update. This week, I'm looking forward to the release of Why Don't We's new album called The Good Times and the Bad Ones. Now for my music picks. Here they are. Lotus Inn by Why Don't We, American Pop. Didn't See It Coming by Parachute, American Pop. Days Like This by John Kay, American Alternative. Rum and Tequila by John Kay, American Alternative. Young Life Crisis by Upsal, American Punk. Overthinking by Mickey Vallon, featuring Mothika, American Alternative. Soap and Dollhouse by Melanie Martinez, American Gothic Alternative. In Over My Head by Grandson, American Rock. Star by Yuzion, Korean R&B. Splash by John Over, Bevy Mako, and Demeanor, Korean Alternative. Home by Jun K, Korean Blues. And finally, Winter Again by Jung Seung Hwan, Korean Ballad. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Spoon Drift. If you want to listen to the music that I talked about, you can check out my Spotify profile, The Spoon Drift Podcast, and listen to The Spoon Drift Season 2 Episode 1 playlist. 
For more episodes of The Spoon Drift, you can visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spinnaker Radio's home on the web, radio.unfspinnaker.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date on everything to do with The Spoon Drift, you can follow me on Twitter at SpoonDriftPod. That's at SpoonDriftPod. Or on Instagram at SpoonDriftPodcast. I hope to talk to you next week.